1945, but his mind was still clear and alert, and he was able to fill in many holes in his story as he had given it to me several years before. The first part of this book, then, is Sergeant Windolph's own story. We have larded it with a few notes so that the reader may have such necessary background as is not included in the old trooper's words. The second part of the book is made up of a great mass of source material official reports, letters, and eyewitness stories by men and officers actually in the battle, largely written when the events were fresh in their minds and before the bitter controversies began. Every possible phase of the battle is covered and all evidence submitted. The authors were determined from the start to take no sides, defend no lost causes or personalities, to include every scrap of information that could possibly be useful in helping the reader arrive at his own conclusions about the historic fight. To do this has required an unusual and unorthodox presentation of this source material in the latter part of the book. Some readers may wonder why a military episode that is little more than a footnote in most history books should be chronicled with all the detail of the mass of source material offered in this book. But at times there is far more to history than may be found between the covers of the formal history books. The legends of Custer and his death on the Little Bighorn have become a precious part of the heritage of American youth. Those, like myself, who grew up in this tradition, have an inexhaustible appetite for facts to bolster up their own arguments and theories. On battlefields of two world wars, I have seen mature officers forget for the moment the campaigns at hand to indulge in sometimes friendly, sometimes bitter arguments over Reno and Benteen and Custer. Soldiers and Western enthusiasts will not cease their arguments over this historic little battle as long as the profession of arms exists and the romance of the frontier lives on. Just one thing more before we turn the pages over to the old sergeant. In a two-column obituary in the New York Daily Tribune of July 7, 1876, that carried the first full report of the battle, there is a paragraph that epitomizes the man this book is about. It reads, His success was a rule without exceptions, and his progress and advance almost without pauses. He was the youngest brigadier and the youngest major general in the army. He never lost a gun nor a color, and captured more guns, flags, and prisoners than any other general not an army commander, and these guns and flags were all taken in action in field service. His personal appearance was singular. Colonel Newhall, who wrote with Sheridan in Lee's last campaign, describes him thus. Custer of the Golden Locks, his broad sombrero turned up from his hard, bronzed face, the ends of his crimson cravat floating over his shoulders, gold galore spangling his jacket sleeves, a pistol in his boot, dangling spurs on his heels, and a ponderous claymore swinging at his side, a wild daredevil of a general, and a prince of advance guards, quick to see and act. He died as he lived, fighting his hardest at the head of his men. That was Custer, a brigadier general of volunteers at 23, a major general at 25. Custer, the darling of the gods. Chapter 1
It doesn't seem possible that it was 70 years ago, this June 25th, 1946, that I last saw General Custer. No, that isn't quite exact. That was the last time I saw him alive. For two days later, I looked down on him lying white in the Montana sun. That would have been June 27th, 1876. And the following day, I helped bury him and his brother, Captain Tom Custer. They were put in graves alongside one another. It was hard digging there on that high ridge that bordered the little bighorn. Seventy years is a long time. It's a long time to remember details and little things. But when you've been thinking back on them all those years, they... Don't fade away as easily as you might think. They're like cockleburrs. They...